All right, let's get our Bibles open to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. Ebby, thank you for serving us last week in uh, God's Word. You did a phenomenal job bringing us to the Lord's Word and bringing us to Jesus and reminding our hearts that our problem isn't all out there, but primarily it is right here, and we need the gospel for that. So thank you for serving us so well. <clears throat> this morning, we are returning back. We're still in Mark, and we are coming to a, a difficult passage. Um, it is on marriage and divorce. And uh, I'll be really honest, this it's not an easy text to come to. And um, I kind of wished I could just hop over this text. Um, I wish we could just jump over it. But one of the things that we do here at Cross Grace is we preach uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. And one of the gifts that that does is it forces you to deal with every text and every part of the Bible in some way. And so we don't have the advantage to just skip over it. And what we get to do is to know that sovereignly, sovereignly God brings us to a text that we, we need at a particular time for our body and our church. And I think he's, he's doing that this morning. But I realize this isn't an easy topic, um, given what topic it is and all that surrounds it. Uh, it's not simple or easy because we, we all have been impacted by, by it. Um, some more than others. And so it's not simple. It's not easy. A lot of it comes with, with pain and confusion and hurt. And I believe by God's providence, he's, he's bringing us to this text at this particular time to, to care for us, to, to encourage us, not to condemn, but to direct us and fortify us so we can move towards him in his ways and um, in and also, just a reminder that I'm, I'm just a mailman. I'm just, I'm delivering Jesus' words to us. And so, as we lean into this text this morning, let us, let us be reminded of that. Let us be reminded this is God's gift to us, God's word to us. And we, we want to hear from him because there, there is confusion about what marriage is of what a man and a woman is in our culture, God's design around that, or what they, or what the world thinks those things are. And we need Jesus' word. We need Jesus' word, and we need hope where there is hurt and there is confusion. And so, as, we've, as I've just thought and prayed over this, this text and talked with the pastors, uh, I just thought it'd be helpful for us to just slow down and take a couple weeks on this topic. And so, um, we, we're going to spend actually two weeks uh, in this section of, of verses. And this morning, we're going to just really try to drill down into uh, this passage in Mark. And next week, sort of zoom out and think more broadly about its implications and specifics about divorce. This is complex, right? This, this, neither of these sermons are going to be exhaustive. Um, there's so many variables that go into this, but my prayer is that, that God will, will speak what he needs to for our hearts. And, um, and I'll probably post something about some different resources that I would encourage us to lean into if you need to, but um, in all the brokenness, I want, I want God to bring to our heart to know the beauty and the good 
the magnificent gift that marriage is and that we would prize it, we would treasure it, and we would fight for it. And so we're going to read our text and we're going to then pray. So let's look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery adultery. This is God's word. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we have been singing this morning, all creatures of our God and King, we praise you. We praise you. God, we we are the created beings, and you are the creator And all we are, all we have, all we exist for, all the things in our life, all of our possessions and all of our relationships, Lord, are are to be in relationship to what you say, into what you command, into what your design is. We were created from you and we are created for you. And so, Lord, this morning, as we think about and we hear your words, Jesus, about not an easy thing, um, Lord, would you please, would you allow our hearts to to remember that we we are here to praise you. And so, meet us today in your word. Meet us today by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, the young German pastor, excuse me, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was hanged in 1945 by the Nazis because he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. That failed, um, but he spent uh, a year and a half in prison for resisting the Nazis and preaching the gospel. And but even though he was in prison, he wrote letters. He was pastoring through that. He was teaching, ministering to prisoners and. And one of the, of the many topics he wrote on, one of them was on marriage. And uh, one of these letters contained these words as he reflected on the ceremony. He says this, As you gave the ring to one another and have now received it a second time from the hand of the pastor, so love comes from you, but marriage from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, 
but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. What is so powerful and profound about this is, is Bonhoeffer never got to experience the beauty of this personally with his love. One of the heartaches was that he was engaged to be married to a woman named Maria and yet never was able to experience that before he was martyred in prison. John Piper writing on this loss, he says, so he never married, he skipped the shadow on the way to reality. Some are called to one kind of display of the worth of Christ, some to another. Martyrdom, not marriage, was his calling. He said he skipped the shadow on the way to the reality. The shadow because marriage tells of a greater reality, a glory that shines, that gives a distinction and purpose to the reality in this earthly thing that we experience. These things of weddings and children and sexual romance, all of these gifts are but temporary. All of these things are beautiful gifts, but we also know that they're intertwined with, with, with the reality of sin, with the reality of brokenness, brokenness in our own hearts, sin in our own hearts, sin in the hearts of others. And yet though sin impacts them, Bonhoeffer, even though he would never marry, knew marriage was about God and about redemption. Marriage is from above, he said, meaning it's God's idea. It's God's idea. And the marriage covenant, this holy bond, this union is so beautiful and so good, he was clarifying that that is the foundation of love. Not the other way around. Marriage sustains the love. Marriage is defined and sustained by something greater. And as we will see, it is from God. And it is through Jesus and his gospel that he both guides it and shapes it. So I want our hearts to be reminded of that this morning. And as we look at this text in the midst of what Jesus is doing with his disciples we're going to see that Jesus calls his disciples to value marriage and guard his created plans and the purpose for it. And this is in contrast then and now to what society wants to do to minimize, to distort, to redefine. And so we as Christians are to seek nothing less than what Jesus wants for that. So what, what is its design? Why marriage and who who is it for? Well, before we look at these verses, let's remember a little bit of background of where, where we find this text. Remember, we have seen in this section, Jesus has been teaching about his, his pathway to the cross, his, his suffering, his dying, and his rising. And he's also been teaching his disciples about discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus as his disciple. And one must deny himself or herself, lay his life down in order to follow him. To lose your life for his sake in order to gain life. And Jesus has been addressing humility, what true greatness is, to be last is to be first. We heard last week about the sobering warnings of what it means to not cause others to sin so we must know Jesus' ways and also for our own heart fighting our own indwelling sin. And then Jesus comes to this topic of divorce. 
I tell you, when I first was sort of thinking about this text, I thought, this just seems out of nowhere. Like, why? It's out of place. And yet, as you zoom out, we, we see it, it is absolutely vital to discipleship. We realize that Jesus is addressing something so important and vital to discipleship because of the vital witness that marriage is to the gospel and to his church. So all in the vein of a gospel-shaped life as followers of Jesus, marriage and how we approach the issue of divorce is radically tied to faithfulness as his disciples. So here, Jesus embeds this teaching for us. And so now, Jesus and his disciples are back in Judea. He's nearing Jerusalem and his cross. And he's confronted with these Pharisees who come, and as you saw, he comes to to test them. The disciples are not looking to learn from Jesus. They're there to confront him and to trick him and to test him. They don't really want his divine guidance And so they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But baked into this question is so much more going on than just on the surface. And Jesus wisely answers them, as he often does, with a question from their question. And he exposes them by saying, what did Moses command you? You see, they weren't simply asking, is divorce permissible? But they wanted to know all the reasons one could justify it. It becomes a little bit clearer in Matthew's account in Matthew 19, verse 3. It gives us some insight. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Or on any or every ground? And Jesus answers their question with this. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he is going to reply to that question from them. And the controversy behind all this is from an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 24, where we read this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So the issue surrounds this word indecency. Now there are different schools of teaching in this time uh, of Jesus of of what that word meant. And there were two main particular schools. And one school was much more rigid and strict and they only saw the act of adultery as one reason to justify divorce. The other was much more loose. So much so that if your wife had a a competency issue in the kitchen and she burned the food, there might be a reason enough to enact a divorce. So an indecent dinner would might be causal for, for that. So in their testing, they're trying to get Jesus to side with one of these schools possibly, maybe to, to lose his influence, to lose his popularity. And if you remember, not too long ago, we had this issue with John the Baptist, and he got in hot water because he was coming against Herod with his brother's wife, who was taking, uh, Herod was taking his brother's wife in an unlawful marriage, and we know what happened to John the Baptist, and so maybe they're trying to get Jesus into the hot water and arrested. 
So they're, they're trying to, sh- to shake up Jesus' popularity, but they're also wanting to give license to justify divorce. How can they get out of this? I recently had to, to re-up my contract with Xfinity for my, my internet, and oh my gosh, what, what a pain that is. Terms of service and, you know, this 12 months contract, blah, blah, blah. And my, one of my questions was, how, how do I get out of this? If, if there's something that goes awry, how do I get out of this situation? And this is, this is kind of what's going on with these guys. They, they want to know what is the bare minimum of their responsibilities so they can get out of this. And Jesus is going to do just the opposite. He's going he's to raise the bar for them. He's, he's stacking up and raising up this reality of divorce to its holy and glorious status. So Jesus answers them, you know why divorce exists? He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Divorce was, was way too common in this day as it was, as it is in ours. And Jesus is correcting them. They assumed Moses commanded people to be divorced, and this was never the case. He gave permission, he, permission was given And the reason was because of sin. The hardness of man's heart. Sin brings divorce. Pre-fall, sin in the garden, pre-fall, before sin was in the garden, there was no need for rules about murder or stealing or divorce. It wasn't there, but after the fall, there was guidance needed by God for the impact of sin in society. So that is why God gave laws relating to restitution or punishment for wrong or things like divorce. For example, the protection of an innocent spouse or for children or women. But Jesus is is clear. Divorce is a result of sin, the hardness of men's heart. And though permitted, this is not God's original design not his best. So Jesus doesn't take the bait. He wasn't going to develop some, you know, some whiteboard construction of this and because of that. He, he, he does something different and he uses what was an understood rabbinic method then, the more original, the weightier. And so what does Jesus do? He, he backs up and he speaks of the beginning. Look at verse six with me. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. His but brings a distinction between what was permissible because of sin to help govern the fallout because of it to what was God's designed will. So Jesus takes it back to creation in the beginning. So in order to get this why, This what question of marriage the Lord goes to the very beginning. The creator and his design. So before we get to marriage, though, the Lord draws attention to who makes up the marriage. Male and female. A man and a woman. So before marriage, God makes clear his design and gender. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, 
He created them. So God made male and female. Two genders, two distinctly different humans to reflect his image and his glory. Image-bearing man and image-bearing woman. Now, think about all that had happened before God created man and woman. God created light. He spoke into nothing and creation responded to his authoritative word. He commanded it and light existed. Land, sky, fish, plants, all of these things were created for his good and for their good. It existed and was blessed as he saw wise and good. Think about that. The many different things all magnify his name by being as they are in their unique differences. I remember when I first saw some of the the blue planets and some of those documentaries on wildlife, the the high definition and the the super high frame rate, some of the slow motion, it, it was capturing images of wildlife that that some of us had never seen. It, it, was, it was mesmerizing to me. And all the uniqueness of the species, of insects, of birds, or, or lions, they were all captured in, in that they were unique in their setting and in their species. If every animal looked the same and did the same, it would be a pretty boring show. But it wasn't that. So far from God's created order and design and all its specifics, far from it boxing creation in and stifling, God is freeing creation in its uniqueness and in its individual beauty. We we don't love the symphony because every instrument sounds the same, but every instrument playing its unique notes comes together, and this is what God was doing. But here's the deal. The crown, the, the pinnacle of his creation wasn't blue whales or, or ants. It was, it was the glory of man and woman design created as image-bearing beings for him to relate to one another as man and woman. Man glorifying God as man. Woman glorifying God as woman. And yet for some reason we get, we get all stuck and confused with, with gender at what we can't be or we can't do and trying to move outside of that versus celebrating the perfect good design and his wisdom in them. His plan for man, his plan for woman, and his design is good. It is in this uniqueness, not just the sameness, that God is glorified. Ray Ortland, in his his excellent book, which I would commend to you, uh, on marriage, this book on marriage and the mystery of the gospel, I'll have copies out for us next week on that. He says this, the first claim of the Bible then, setting the stage for marriage, is that manhood and womanhood are not our own cultural constructs. Human concepts are too small and artificial a concept for the glory for our sexuality. 
Manhood and womanhood find their true meaning in the context of nothing less than the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the universe, the entire creation. That is the first claim of the biblical love story. So it is only in his foundation, God's design of man and woman, does marriage make sense. Does, does any sort of unfolding or context of a love story, of a marriage find satisfaction and rightness for it is within God's design bringing one man and one woman together this is the God's ways this is God's way for society and for human flourishing and so still quoting Genesis Jesus then says this look at verse 7 now giving definition to to marriage Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So let's take a moment, just kind of look at this in parts. They leave father and mother. So the created ordinance of marriage was that this one man and this one woman would then separate ties from their other family members to be united in this one relationship, this new inseparable bond of family. And they would become, become one flesh. No longer two, one man, one woman, now becoming one flesh. D.A. Carson says this, the one flesh in every marriage between a man and a woman is a reenactment of and testimony to the very structure of humanity as God created it. So each time a marriage takes place, this, this union, it, it's, in its, in its proper God-ordained way. It's, it's like this callback, this, this testimony. Look at what God has done in the beginning. God's created order. It's testifying to God's ways and what he has said is good. And it is only this union between man and woman that constitutes a one-flesh union according to to God, which is marriage. Now, this one flesh, it does refer to the sexual act, and it is reserved only for one person with another person, the spouse, and their other spouse. And so any sexual act outside of that context is sin. It is sexual, but it also speaks of something, something deep in there is no other bond, no other closeness that should exist in another human relationship than those two individuals. Sharing all things. Bodies, but time and possessions and money and thoughts and home. There's nothing off limits in this one flesh union. Yours is mine and mine is yours. And this union, this one flesh union, is not a human idea. We've got to understand this, church. This is, this is a divine work of God. This is what Jesus says in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together. This is a divine work 
of God. He oversees it all. Ray Ortland again, a husband and wife when they marry do not become one flesh by their own wills or by the pastor's pronouncement or by some mysterious process. God joins them together. God does. He defines this reality. He is the one that seals this covenant. The title, the title has his name printed on it. This word man is not like male or the, the dude in the marriage here. It is human. God, God, is, God is saying what God has done in this divine act of overseeing this covenant, let not humans think that they can meddle with that. That's how important it is. That's how glory, glorious it is. Marriage is not like Play-Doh where we can just stretch it and form it to decide what we want it to be or disregard it and think it's invaluable or antiquated. Use that word traditional marriage as if somehow it is, it is outdated and oppressive in some sort of old relic. No, it is from the beginning. God's holy covenant. God's covenant designed in his eternal wise plan from the beginning and therefore it is sacred. It is something that is reverent. And why breaking that is so devastating. So to know the gravity and the beauty of marriage, it, as we've been seeing, it, it leads us to this, this greater why and also to, to for the, the who marriage is for. Marriage is from him, but it is, it is for him. It is for his glory. So Jesus pulls us back. He, he points us to the beginning, but we see later in Scripture, as we move into the New Testament, we, we see more explicitly what that purpose is and who it is for. In Ephesians chapter 5, a well-known chapter, Paul speaks of marriage and the relationship of and union between a husband and wife and that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gives himself, gave himself up for her and the wives are to, to honor, respect, and submit to their husbands as unto the Lord and tells us how Jesus shapes that relationship. And in verse 32 in chapter 5, we hear these words, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. This word mystery here is not something that like we oftentimes use this word as this mysteriously impossible thing that, we, that is unknowable. But it has something to do with something that was hidden in the past that in the unfolding of redemption in Christ now becomes fully understood. It's disclosed, it's explained. And what is it? It, it, it is now disclosed and known that marriage is this one flesh union. And it is to model and display what it is like between Christ and his church, his people. It reflects his sacrificial death, his covenant-keeping love to secure his bride's love and affection now and forever. Never to leave. Never to forsake. Never to harm. 
always working for her joy now and through eternity. And his unbreakable bond was with his beloved and is for his beloved. And so this one flesh commitment, this union in marriage is the pattern, this commitment Jesus has with his bride in his church. So it's a a total claim of God on the total claim of our relationships with one another because marriage is for God and from God. It's God's marriage. And it's a beautiful gift. And it's from him and it's for him. And that is why it must be attended to with such vigilance and care. I just want to, I want to take a moment just to encourage my, my brothers in a moment, for a moment. Matthew Henry, a commentator, a pastor, he wrote these words in reference to that moment of creation when the God made woman from man from his side out of his rib. In that Genesis account, he says, the woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Beloved. Men, we are called to cherish our wives. We are called to protect them, to nurture them, to provide for them, to love them as Jesus does his bride. He never sins against his bride. He never hurts a woman. He protects her. He loves, serves, honors, lifts up. His fidelity is so true and so pure. No other lovers except his bride. And Jesus calls us to that. When we read these profound words for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, it drops on us and it should should sober us with a weighty, weighty, profound yoke as if we were just called to hike up Mount Everest. Like this seems impossible. Sobering. And in that, it, it should push us into Jesus. We need Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. We need to love and serve like Jesus and sacrifice like Jesus. Hear me, we, we can't be Jesus to our spouses. That Only Jesus can be Jesus to our wives. But we, through gospel power, can love. That's God's expectation of us. Only gospel power would enable us to do this. Pastor Gary Ricucci said it this way, the role of a husband doesn't begin at the altar, it begins with the atonement at the cross. So brothers, we need to be clothed in the gospel. We need gospel power, we need gospel help, but, but we are called to nothing less than to strive to be like Jesus for our brides. Let us do that, brothers. And I want to take a moment in all our marriage talk to just talk about singleness for just a moment. Not everyone is called to marriage. 
In Matthew's account of this text, Jesus is laying out this high bar and this expectation and the disciples actually respond and say, uh, maybe it'd be better if we don't marry. It was so intensely um, weighty for them and even Paul in Corinthians speaks of the freedom that we have when we give ourselves to the Lord and to, the, to his kingdom rather than marriage. We're not tied down to the painful difficulties of marriage in family. So singleness is a gift and it is, it is good. We were reminded of that. And just a reminder, church, to be single doesn't mean that the, those people are freed up to be perpetual babysitters for everyone else in the church. Um, Sam Elberry, in his excellent book on, entitled Seven Myths of Singleness, he is a, a single, he's an unmarried pastor and just it's a very helpful ministry. He writes this, Jesus is the most co- complete and fully human person who ever lived. So his not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human being. The moment we say otherwise, the moment we claim a life of celibacy to be dehumanizing, we are implying that Jesus himself is only subhuman. But his point is, singleness isn't less than God's best, as if we will, we will not experience the fullness of God's gospel and his grace in our life, and there's somehow second-class Christians. That's false. We need to put that away. Future glory is one where we aren't married or given in marriage, Jesus said. Um, but we will be family then, and we are family now. Meaning we are brothers and sisters. And so I want to just remind our hearts and challenge us that we need to, to cultivate, cultivate friendships and brotherhood and sisterhood in and among all places where we are in relationships. We haven't always done the best in this area, and I want to encourage us to lean into that, church. And as a family, as brothers and sisters, our goal is to increase our joy in following Jesus, wherever we are in our station of life. Sam goes on to say, the issue is not whether this path or that path is better, whether singleness or marriage would bring me more good. The issue is God and whether I will plunge myself into him, trusting him every day. He goes on to say, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. So so the challenge for us, not just singles, but you, husband, you, wife, are, are, we, are we plunging ourselves into Christ every day? Letting him shape what we need to in our relationship. How Jesus supplies all sufficiency that we need to walk that out for the good and the God-glorifying God call within our marriage or within singleness. We desperately need him. And he doesn't withhold his grace to meet us in that. He wants to meet us in that church. So this has been a a couple hopes for me as I thought and prayed about this this kind of mini-series, whatever you want to call it. That we, we could, knowing God's grace, knowing his mercy, knowing the gospel power that we have in Jesus, that we would come alongside one another those who have been impacted by this, and we would care well for each other. 
we'd work through pain and loss and we would, we would see what maybe sins there are in a contribution to brokenness and where others' contributions are to that. And we would, we would remind each other that there is mercy and there is grace for whatever sin and failure there is. So we would come alongside to care for one another. And then secondly, we would celebrate and we would esteem marriage in fresh ways. And we would engage as best we can and we would speak truth in love to one another so that, so that brokenness would not be the end. That, that we would encourage one another to get help where we need help. I want to encourage you, if, if there is, and this has happened in the past where you, one of the spouses thinks we really need help, we should ask for help. We need to open up about what's going on. And the other spouse thinks, I don't think we need to, and I think we're doing okay. Would you get help? Would you invite help? Don't wait. Don't let things linger. There's no shame in that. Jesus wants to meet you in that. Don't let things continue as they are. If marriages is our, marriage is God's design and it is for him, marriage isn't ultimately about my personal fulfillment or my happiness, even though there is great fulfillment and there is great joy when we live in God's design. But if it is for him and if marriages are to reflect God's redemptive work and relationship between Christ and Jesus and his church, his bride, then when marriages are shaped by his sacrificial love, his God's servanthood, his mercy, his friendship and intimacy, his patience, his encouragement, his kindness, his joy, then marriages are radically precious. And they're radically holy and it's radically good. And that is why we, we fight for them. That is why we give attention to them. That is why we labor when it is hard and we move towards Jesus and we bring in help when we need it. And though brokenness is a reality, we don't have to remain there. We move towards Christ. We move towards Christ. And so saints, we need to be disciples that value marriage and guard his created plans for it and purposes for it. This section on discipleship, uh, it's booked, bookended by two stories. Two stories of, of blind men who were given sight by Jesus. And in between Jesus' laying out his big idea of sacrificial living through the cross and what it calls disciples to, and, and part of the picture of that is to realize that we, we are blind in and ourselves to walk this out without Jesus' sight, without his power helping us. We need him to see him and to know his ways. We need him and to see him so that we aren't left to ourselves devising our own ideas of what marriage is and what it looks like in, in the moments of brokenness in our marriage. We need Christ. We need Christ. And he makes himself available for us in that. So there's gospel hope. There's gospel hope in grace that empowers us to walk rightly in our marriage. There's gospel hope in grace 
so that when it comes to those brokenness, broken things, God wants to bring healing and restoration for us. There's gospel hope and grace in healing when there is sin in the midst of that brokenness. And there's gospel hope and grace for us that we can continue to move towards the Lord and allow our marriages to be that mysterious sermon that's preaching the Lord's relationship with Christ and his church. And so there's mercy and there's grace, church, for us. And I just want to just hold that out wherever you are. We're in this series, and I hope at no point there's this place where condemnation or, or shame is, is communicated. Jesus comes to tell us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we can come to him in all of our weakness and struggle. And so let's hold that out to one another. And I want to hold that out continually for us. And so let us pray. Let us pray for that end. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you come, you come and you hold out for us the, the beginnings and the whys and the four in marriage. And it is, it is a sobering reality when we, we hear these words, Jesus. We think, how can I, how can we, how can we get there? Um, but the thing that you call us to, Lord, you provide all the grace we need to do and walk in that. And in all the areas where we fail and we each fail, Lord, there is great forgiveness and mercy for us as your people. So, Lord, I ask that you would you do a few things, Lord. You would help us as a body to, to serve and walk through where there is brokenness and hard things with one another. Lord, where there is, where there is f- fractured marriages that, that need help, would you, Lord, would you allow those couples to open up and they would get help? And they would be met with only thing but only thing, only but grace and gospel hope in the midst of that. Would you provide grace to the humble? So Lord, let us humble ourselves where we need help. Where there's pain from the past, Lord, in brokenness, would you bring healing to people's hearts today? Would you lift shame and guilt and would you let them find freedom and healing, Lord? And, and Lord, in our, in our marriages, Lord Jesus, would you allow there to be in a, in a where things have just been coasting, would you give us hearts to give attention to, to sow to and mature and to see God your best and what you want in that. The joy that's available, the hope that's available, the, the bliss that's available in the beauty of that. Because Jesus, you shed your blood. You shed your blood for the purpose of that. So strengthen us as a church. And as we consider these things for this week and even as we return to the same topic next week, would you just allow us to be fortified by your grace as a church to live in this well, to follow you well, your design and your direction, Jesus. In your name we pray.